It is great to be here today, to have the Word ready for you, and to discuss and look at some great truths about John the Baptist. That's who we're going to be studying this morning. So if you'll take your Bibles and join me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. We're doing a three-part series, and the intent is to lead up to the purpose for Jesus being born of a virgin, to redeem the world, his form and function in the time that he was here on the earth and what he'll be for our future. But I think it's important to understand chronologically why Luke writes the way he writes. Now, all the Gospels are inspired by God, and that's important to chat about for just a moment. There's a lot of holy texts in the world today, and they posit to be holy texts because they say, well, God wrote it. And they don't have much proof behind it, but it is significant to recognize there's a lot of holy texts that say that they're holy. What makes the Bible stand out? The Bible stands out not in just that it speaks for itself, but it's been historically accurate and continues to be proven over and over. If you just Google biblical archaeology or biblical archaeology discoveries in the last 50 years, I think you would be really impressed by how much of the history that we learn today was first proposed by the Bible. Because it was in the Bible, and the world does not accept that kind of knowledge, it was written off. And most of the time, before these major discoveries, people would say, see, the Bible talks about things that are not even true. But then you come to find out the Bible actually is proven through these archaeological digs and different things like that. But a major form to the accuracy of the Bible is prophecy. Prophecy is very important, fulfilled prophecy specifically. And because the Bible says things will happen hundreds of years before that come to fulfillment in the exact detail, it's important to recognize that this is a text beyond man's scope. Today, people are getting ready to sit in casinos and bet on football games. They're going to look at how many points total could be scored, and they're going to ask you to put money on. Are they going to go over those points? Are they going to go under those points? Then you have to choose a winner. There is nobody that can accurately determine to the absolute degree of 100% perfection the outcome of the games today. They might be able to pick the right winner, but the reason why Vegas has an over and under is because nobody knows exactly how many points are going to be scored. And they're asking you to take your money and trust in the experts. I can't tell you how many times I hear on Sports Talk Radio this guy in a super raspy voice. It sounds like he breathes and exhales cigarettes all day. It is like, I got the picks for you. Call John. It's a lock. It's a lock. And you're like, what's a lock, man? <laughs> are you okay? <laughs> But man, I'm telling you, people hear that and they go, I got an extra $100, I'm just going to go ahead and spend it, and you know, they put money on a team, and then you know, people end up, what? Losing money, and they lose money at record paces, but you know, that's a sign of, man, we can't accurately determine what the future is going to be. God, who knows all things, can accurately predict what the future says. John the Baptist is a very important part, and a very important part of prophecy, because he comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah, the one that came before him, and he is there to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. His ministry, as soon as Jesus came onto the scene and began to do his public ministry, it waned, it decreased. And John knew that, he understood it. He didn't suffer from an identity crisis because now Jesus was replacing him. He knew what he was there to do. And there's a very important form and function in John's ministry, and we're going to cover all those things today. And I think it'll be a benefit to you, especially as we're thinking about Christmas time and the holiday season and the opportunity to share the gospel with people. People may ask you, well, why do you believe the Bible to be true? I think it's important to have an answer for those people. The prophecy of Jesus Christ alone in the place of his birth is significant. Two different Bethlehems. One a major city, one a minor city, and to the degree of the accuracy has to be important. And if it's one or the other, then the Bible's not right. It just got one thing right. But it got things right all the way down to Bethlehem Ephrata, the time in which Jesus was going to be uh, brought about as the Messiah. 
Psalm 22, all of these different things are important, but it's important to also recognize when you use the Scripture, you're using God's holy text. The Holy Spirit is in line with truth. The Holy Spirit does not just say truthful things, He is the truth. And that, that's a major difference, right? You can have a dishonest person speak the truth, okay? but they're still a dishonest person. They can get things right, but inherently they're wicked. The Holy Spirit is not some neutral all light and the equal opposite darkness, you know, like what most theories would be today about deities. He is truth. And it's important to recognize when you're going through this holiday season, you're going through and sharing the gospel with people, you are speaking the Holy Spirit's message through you. And there's great power and also a lot of responsibility that comes with that too. If we're not responsible with the gospel message, I believe we'll be held accountable for that. And that'll be at the judgment seat of Christ for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. So we have a lot of work to do. But I think it was good to do this three-part series and start with John the Baptist because he prepares the way. He's the announcer for Jesus the Messiah. So start with me in Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. Verses 1 through 4 are, you know, they're not unimportant. They're very important. But Luke is a very, very interesting writer. His Greek is clean, Okay. When he wrote the Gospel of Luke, it's, it, it, it's important. Even in the words he uses for people are different to signify all people and not just as some people would say, well, Jesus just came to redeem Israel because the church is not mentioned in all these different things. When you study the book of Acts, which is also written by Luke, it's very precise. It's very detailed. I like all four of the Gospels, John's Gospel being my favorite because it's a personal thing to me. I, I understood the Gospel through the book of John. to a, I understood my eternal security through the book of John. But when you study Luke, he's accurate. And in the first four verses, he claims that accuracy. He's writing to a man. And then he says here in verse 5, there was in the days of Herod, the kings of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia, and his wife was the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Why is this significant? Well, Zachariah is going to be doing priestly functions. It's a part of his line of what he was going to do. Verse 6 shows you some interesting things about the mom and dad of John the Baptist. Take a look here. It says, and they were both righteous before God. This is a very important thing to note. The righteousness here, I don't necessarily means that they were imparted eternal life. I think what the righteousness is referring to here is they were in a good standing with God as was in accordance to their time and day. What would that, what would that have been? Well, I'm thinking if we're thinking of a man like Job, who also was described as a person who was righteous, they were very, uh, they paid a lot of attention to sacrifices, to being in a proper standing with God, to making sure that sin was properly atoned for. This did not bring about their eternal life, but they were doing things right in a nation that was rejecting God. You have to remember, before this time, it's about 400 years, no, no prophets were speaking, the Pharisees were... They're being born, they're living, they're dying, and, and the nation is far from understanding what a Messiah is. If you remember when Jesus walked in to Jerusalem before his crucifixion, he wept before the city. Why? Because they were looking for someone outside of him. He was the Son of God, the true Messiah. What was Israel looking for? Redeem us from the Roman oppression. And that's what they were focused on, and that's what they wanted to see in a Messiah, but he was the lamb slain. The people rejected him. But Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were in right standing with God. They were doing things correctly, yet there's another significant thing here that would seem to contradict the fact that they were in a good standing. Look what this says. Walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord blameless. Verse 7, and they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren and they both were now well stricken in years. We know this can't be a part of God's discipline on Elizabeth. You say, well, how can we know that? Because she was righteous and doing right through her household. But this was a very unacceptable thing in the culture. To be considered barren and to be a woman who is barren, you were considered to be not cursed by God, but not blessed either. There was something wrong with you. That was the viewpoint and children are a blessing from the Lord. The Lord shows that time and time again. And barrenness was kind of a mark of sadness. It was a hard thing. 
And I've, I'm sure you have family members or people in your circle who it took a long time for them to conceive and maybe they never even did conceive. And that could be a hard thing. I've got friends in my life who were so looking for a child and, and ready for a child and then she suffered a miscarriage. That was a very hard thing. And now they have a little boy and God has blessed them greatly. But there was difficulty, there was sadness in this family. Regardless of what they were doing, they were still honoring God, but they had a burden. And this was important to mention because God was not only going to give Elizabeth a child, but he was going to give her a prophet. One that was in the same likeness of Elijah, one of the most influential prophets in Israel's time. They were going to be mom and dad to that child. Let's continue on here in verse 8. So you have the scene kind of, they're just working, staying correct with the Lord, but they don't have any children, and that was difficult. She's also getting older, so the likelihood is decreasing that she would have a child. And it came to pass that while he, this is referring to dad now, Zacharias, executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. So he would be separating himself from the people. This is important to note. There's a common area where people were praying. You're going to see that in, in verse 10, where the whole multitude was. He's going into a private place to do what he's supposed to do, what he's probably done several times that year, yet alone all the years of his service. He's just doing what he's supposed to do. And the whole multitude, verse 10, of the people were praying without at the time of incense. By the way, praying without means they were praying outside. They were not in Zechariah's presence, but he departed from them to go offer this incense. And in that moment, when he's doing his priestly functions, he gets a visit from the angel Gabriel. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Just a note, I just want to I want you to have your antenna up for when you hear people say, I had a vision from an angel. And then what they proceed to communicate that the angel said to them contradicts the word of God. Every time an angel appears to man in the scripture, they are stricken with fear. There are some animators on YouTube using artificial intelligence and stuff that try to feed AI this biblical description of what an angel looks like. He doesn't look like a bodybuilder with wings and a robe. Some of these things are terrifying. If you were to see it in your house, you would go, what? <laughs> and you would certainly be fearful if it was like, spoke your name. <laughs> and so we see here, obviously, the angel Gabriel appears to him, not saying that he looked weird or anything, but it was an impressive appearance. It, it, it caused him to be afraid and concerned for his well-being. He was troubled, and, and fear fell upon him. Verse 13, But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. I want you to underline this, because we can see this kind of sheds light on verse 7, the struggle that they had as a family not to have children. They were not just idly trusting in the world to answer their need. They were praying to God. And you see that marked here by the fact that the angel recognizes that your prayer has been heard, and here's how it's going to be fulfilled. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, please mark that, and thou shalt call his name John, mark that as well. This is important. His name is going to be this way, it's determined to be this way, because God has chosen John for this particular service. Now there's several things that are mentioned here in verse 15, 16, and 17. We're going to read these three verses, and then we're going to break down each one to see the form and the function of John the Baptist's ministry. Contrary to popular belief, John was not commanding people to turn from their sin and experience deliverance in his water baptism. Although he does say, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, be baptized, and he was baptizing Everything about John's baptism was uncommon. We're going to see that later when we get to the Gospel of John and look at a discourse between John the Baptist and the Pharisees of his day. But starting in verse 14, and thou shalt have joy and gladness. Boy, this is, 
I like this. The angel's first message is, you guys, you. Mom and dad to John the Baptist, Zacharias and Elizabeth, y'all are going to be, you're going to have joy. He's going to be a joy to you. I think we often kind of skip over that because it's not talking about, you know, John's the Baptist ministry about healed in the way for Jesus Christ. But you know that that child had to be raised. He didn't come out of the womb as a man ready to go into the wilderness and be separated from his parents. He's a little kid. He probably fell and skinned his knee and uh, talked back, I'm sure. But what a blessing that was to Elizabeth and to Zacharias. As somebody who comes from a background, in, in my background, and my wife as well, where we could not have our own children, this is personal to me. And I want to highlight it to you because I just want you to see that for some people, they may read the Scripture and see something that you don't see. But it's a great testimony here to that these two were praying. And they were not only praying, but they were still doing what they were supposed to do. They weren't bitter. At least it's not revealed that they were so. I mean, it's, they're, they're described as righteous and blameless. They trusted that God would answer. But here's the angel now communicating, basically, you won. I don't want to say you won, but, you know, you, it's going to happen. And so much more. Now it says here, not only thou shalt have joy and gladness, the end of 14, and many shall rejoice at his birth. Let's focus on that second statement there. Many shall rejoice at his birth. Why? Well, John's birth would precede the birth of Jesus, who is the Messiah, who would bring joy to all those who receive him by faith. There's a significant record we're going to look at in the Gospel of John in a little while that is important about John the Baptist's ministry. It's really the peak of what he did. But people rejoiced at his birth because those who heard John's message would see the Savior. They would see and understand this is the one of whom John said, I am not this one. I go before him to point you to him. Also, I see a lot of evangelism here. This is how we should be as evangelists. And you say, well, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not classically trained. Doesn't matter. A soul winner, someone who has the gospel message, you go out there and share it. You, in form, are similar to John the Baptist as you declare the Messiah. It's not trust in me so you can get to heaven. It's trust in Jesus Christ. And I come to bear good news about him. So you see a lot of different comparisons here. Into verse 15, now we get a lot. There's a lot of specific details about John. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. You should underline that verse. This is very important, especially with the word turn. When you see that word turn used in concert with the word repent, you can understand how metanoia is a change of mind. You are not turning from sin to be accepted by God. You can't do that. You need a new birth. You need somebody who is perfect and die in your place. There's got to be a sacrifice. There has to be the shedding of blood. Without it, there is no remission. But Israel is facing this way, so to speak. They are looking for a political redeemer. And they are going by the teaching of the Pharisees, which is teaching hollow, empty self-righteousness. It is for them to stop looking this way for your Redeemer and see that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. That turning is not a physical changing of one's actions. It's a change of mind. It's exactly what the word metanoia means. To change one's mind from what you were trusting in for Israel, what would they have been trusting in? A different Messiah. You change your mind and put your trust in Jesus Christ. Which one? The one of Nazareth. Can you be more specific? The one who's born of the Virgin Mary. You start attacking those doctrines, you're taking away the power that is there. And that's very important to recognize because if the Scripture says something accurate of Jesus Christ, it must be there as a mark of distinction He's fulfilling prophecy. Look at verse 17. And he shall go before him in the spirit and the power of Elias to turn, again, that word is used, the hearts of the fathers to children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just 
and mark this as well, to make ready a people. This word is laos, L-A-O-S. This is significant. It's not just Israel. This is everybody. Why is that significant, Jew and Gentile? Raise your hand if you are not a Jew. Raise your hand, please. Welcome to the Gentile Club. You've been here all your life. We do have membership cards. I'm <laughs> just kidding. This is everybody. This is not just excluded to the people, of, excuse me, to the children of Israel, because, you know, they were chosen as, you know, children of Israel physically. But it's important to recognize this for anybody who will see and believe. But John's purpose is to herald that message. All right, back up just a second where he says, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. John's spiritual greatness would magnify the Lord and be evident to those who received his teachings. Many people received the teaching of John. You say, how do we know that? The Pharisees tried to stop him. Now I know we paint the Pharisees as an evil group. You've got to remember that there is those who are deceived and those who are the deceivers. The deceiver really is not plural. It's one, and that's Satan. Self-righteousness plays to man's pride, naturally. We are naturally prideful people. You remember when you were a kid, when you started thinking, I don't like when people are telling me what to do. I want to do what I want to do. Okay, you were born with that. Your parents did not have to teach you selfishness, nor did they have to teach you the art of lying so you can eventually get your way. It's all built within us. The problem with the Pharisees is that they, as men, were abusing this holy office and making righteousness before God Righteousness that has to be honored by their standard of righteousness. They were the ones who were influencing sacrifices. This is why when Jesus went into the temple and he was flipping tables, it's not because he's showing you that you can go flip tables. And I say that, and that's, that sounds kind of funny, but I know people that are like, well, Jesus had righteous anger and so will I. You need to stop yourself for a second and take a look and understand why did he do that? The quality of those sacrifices in the temple, it was in a class system. Are you poor? Take this little thing. It's wounded. It doesn't meet the biblical requirements, but you can use it. God will accept it. You're poor. You see how they were diminishing God's standard of righteousness? You want to know why the book of Leviticus is so detailed? Because God has a form that he wants followed to be honored. It's going to be shown in his son. When the Pharisees would diminish those standards and make it about self-righteousness, they are a very offense to God himself. But as soon as John the Baptist was going around and people were hearing him, who's this guy? He's come out of the woods. He only eats a certain thing. He's got an odd appearance. And he's preaching the kingdom of heaven's coming. Things are getting ready. Well, I'm going to listen to what he says. And people were changing their minds. Looking forward to this coming Messiah who John was saying, he's coming. He's here. The Pharisees didn't like that. Why? It drew power away from them. Don't we see that today? You see that today in how little churches are run. And I mean little churches because they're little. They don't grow. Because you have a pastor who is power hungry for everything to go for him. That's, that can destroy a church. What if God's word is uh, contrary to what that pastor says is true? Well, you've got a problem now. You have a godly man serving as the pastor. He would submit to God's word, but many times pastors put themselves. They begin to define the standard of righteousness. You're seeing this today in the new independent fundamental Baptist movement. You go on YouTube and you type in NIFB, and you will see countless video after video after video of people defining how you get to heaven. I have heard NIFB people say, if you... Do not believe that God created the world in a literal six days. You cannot believe on Jesus Christ. That is bad. <laughs> it's garbage. How do we get to that opinion? Because this pastor thinks, well, you know what? I'm going to start defining what is right and what is not. And instead of just trusting what the Word says, he starts defining it himself. Pharisees were doing the same thing. And that's why when... John saw him, he didn't say, welcome, brothers. You know what he said to him? Oh, ye generation of vipers. That's pretty classic KJV burn, okay? It's a roast. That's not, come on in and sit down. He was describing what they were inwardly. Jesus also used strong language of these 
hard-headed men. He said, you are whited sepulchers. What does that mean? Basically, you look good on the outside, but inwardly, you're a rotting and decaying corpse. Let's make, <laughs> let's make the actor for The Chosen speak like that. We don't see that kind of Jesus spoken about today. Because the world wants to change it and make Jesus tolerant, and he never said anything mean, and he welcomed everybody. Folks, he was compassionate, and he did socialize with the worst of society. But he did not tolerate sin. Hello? <laughs> he came to pay for it. You start rewriting these things, it becomes a major problem. John's spiritual greatness would be recognized. The next statement there is that he'll, he'll neither uh, drink wine nor strong drink. This is an emphasis on the similarities between his lifestyles and the prophets who came before him. Excuse me. Most notably, Elijah. You remember Elijah came out of the woods. <laughs> this guy was, uh, he said, he's a hairy man. That doesn't mean that he just was hairy in general, but he was just kind of unkept. He's that guy. We're going to be listening to him. And John was going to be received in the same way. These were marks of identification. The next statement there, he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. This was something that John was elected in a form of service to do. And as he would go out and teach this ministry, he was doing this in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is significant for Old Testament times. We live in a time where when you believe, no matter what your maturity may be in the future, as far as a Christian is, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. If you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, you've said, I know I'm a sinner. My sin needs payment. I can't pay it myself. I'm putting my trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that his shed blood, his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross was there to pay for my sin. Okay, the moment that you come to that change of mind here, by the way, I didn't say anything about a prayer or turning from sin or starting to attend a church and abandoning your old lifestyle. All of that is about Christian maturity and growth, okay? Being born again, you have a change of mind up here. The Bible says immediately you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It was not that way before the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost. So why is it significant then that John had the filling of the Holy Spirit? God was using him to bring about his perfect plan. This does not mean that John the Baptist was chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved against his own volition. He made a choice. God used him in a certain way. Just like a Jewish person can't control that they're born as a part of God's people. But this is also why, and I, I'm going a little bit off on a side note here, but I want you to understand this. When you read things in Scripture like the unprofitable servant a lost sheep of the house of Israel. These things don't sound like they make sense, but they do if you recognize that a person who's being addressed in those passages are Jewish people, Israelites, who are a part of the physical children of God here on the earth. They're of the nation of Israel, but they're not going to get into the kingdom. Why? Because they reject Jesus. That's why. So the unprofitable servant who's cast into outer darkness is not the believer that didn't do anything with their lives. The unprofitable servant is the servant who is physically a child of Israel who will not get into the very kingdom of which the Messiah came out of his line, out of his nation. There's other places where the Roman soldier is, he, Jesus says, there's not even faith like what you have right now. I don't see that in all of Israel. And he says, people of the kingdom, or excuse me, uh, uh, people who are a part of Israel are going to see people from all over the world sit with their patriarchal, uh, patriarchal figures like Abraham and Moses and all that, and they themselves are going to be left out. The only qualification that excludes you from heaven is you reject Jesus Christ. What John is doing is preparing the way for people to see and hear and ultimately make a decision. You're going to believe or you're going to reject. Next statement says, Many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. This highlights John's ministry would be focused on Israel <clears throat> repenting of their incorrect standards for the kingdom of heaven. He would implore them to believe on Jesus, who is their promised Messiah, who will be of that line of David. 
and his throne will be forever. You're going to see that in just a moment. And then finally, the seventh thing, go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah, turn the hearts, make ready a people for the Lord. Most significant of all John's ministry would be repentance. That's what John preached, repentance. And it's not the repentance that you and I have come to understand today. What's the definition of repentance today? Be sorry for. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You do not get salvation by looking to God and saying, I'm sorry. You get salvation, you experience salvation by saying, I'm putting my trust in your son who died for my sins. Now, as you grow, that sin which put Jesus on the cross and has already been paid for, that should not sit well with you. If you want to serve God and you want to give back to God, why would you continue to do the things that cost Jesus his blood and life? That's Christian growth. You got the Holy Spirit inside of you prompting you to do right, and you've got two choices. You ever heard of the term a hardened criminal? It's different than just a criminal, right? Someone may do something that brings an offense against them and they're charged as a criminal, and then they realize, hmm, I didn't like the power of the government coming against me. Hmm, I didn't like that all my freedoms were taken away. Hmm, I didn't like, for some people, that my freedoms are forever taken away. And they change. They start doing correct things. But there's those criminals, hardened criminals, who go, I don't care. And they continue to do things that put them in jail and take away their freedoms. What's the difference between these two criminals? They're both criminals. One recognizes that he has an opportunity to change and do something different. The other one chooses to continue to do what he does. This could be a description of a child of God as well. You have somebody who knows the truth. Both people know the truth. These two examples. One receives chastening and discipline from God because they have sin in their lives that they're not dealing with. And they decide, you know what? I don't like that. I'm going to change. I'm going to do right. I'm going to walk in the Spirit. And you have another believer who goes through the same chasing, the same discipline, but decides, I want my way. You see this in families. There are some kids who are just stubborn. And it takes a long time for them to get with the program. Amen? Amen. Some of those children grew up in adults and are here today. Amen? We had to learn lessons the hard way. Sadly, there are some children that never get out of that. And they end up living a life of, of just sadness. And it's a shame to them. It's a shame to their parents. It's hard. People make choices and there are consequences for those choices. John's message is, don't look at me. Look at Jesus. Now, the message is given. Here's Zechariah's response in verse 18. And Zechariah said unto the angel, whereby shall I know this? Now, you may seem this next part is really harsh, but in that one question and then the follow-up, you see what's going on with Zechariah. We see it also in Gabriel's response. Whereby shall I know this? Well, how could he know it? Can I have your eyes for a sec? I just told you. I think we chuckle because, man, that's us too. Don't go in there. Goes in there. Why did you go in there? Oh, no. Well, no, you knew. You just didn't believe me. Now, we're laughing at that. We understand that. But it's significant to see. He responded to the truth with unbelief. But he didn't stay that way. Look at what it said. For I am an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. Remarkable. We can look at answered prayer in the face and still say, that's not it. Remember, he prayed for this. He's a good man. Still didn't believe. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God. Significant statement here. I'm standing in the very presence of the one who's going to do this thing in your life. And I'm sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. These are not credentials. He's not proving himself. He's saying, this is why. This is how it's going to happen. Remember the question that was just asked by, uh, by Zacharias. How shall I know this? Gabriel's basically saying, I'm here. 
That's how you're going to know it. But, behold, verse 20, and behold, thou shalt be dumb. Now that doesn't mean he lacked knowledge. He was unable to speak. Continue on. And not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed. Because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. Continue on. And the people waited for Zacharias. Why were people waiting for Zacharias? Remember, he just went in to offer the incense for them. He came out, marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. He was there longer than what he normally was. I'm not sure if that's because the vision that was being detailed to him or the fact that maybe that man was on his knees recognizing what had just happened to him. And remember, he can't talk now. And when he came out, verse 22, he could not speak unto them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. Um, Yes, that did happen. For he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. The man, even if he wanted to speak, he could not. This was a supernatural closing of his mouth. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked upon me. Mark this, please, to take away my reproach among men. Luke, who writes in a very detailed way, as he's listening to what God is to tell him, includes this part. Elizabeth received the message. And this is very important to recognize because her husband denied it or looked for additional proof. She believed it. And now here she is, she's five months pregnant with a child of which she has prayed. And she has no idea what's going on. Why? Husbands? Mm. I see some remarkable parallels here to, to to the answering of prayer. We can have all the knowledge. We can have all the parts, right? Yet, We don't know how to put things together. And then when something is put together for us by somebody else, we say, nope, that's not true because I didn't do it. But then the simple faith is, look how God has answered my prayer. There should be some takeaway from you and me there, okay? I don't know what you're asking God to do in your life or what prayer you're waiting to be answered, but I can tell you as confidently as I know that I'm going to heaven when I die, God will do no wrong by you. You walk according to His ways and you wait on Him expectantly, be ready when He gives you the answer. Don't look at it and call it a lie. Don't look at it and say, I need more proof. Take God at His word. Amen? Isn't that a great place to be? You can know in the act of prayer, you might not get an answer right then, but you know God heard me and may His will be done. I want you to go to chapter, or excuse me, verse 67 in chapter 1. Zacharias did not believe and therefore suffered consequences for his unbelief. Yet after the birth of his son, John, he would be used by God to give probably one of the most impressive and impactful prophetic speeches, especially for a man that said nothing for nine months. I don't know if Zacharias was much of a chatter, but can you imagine if yours truly went mute for nine months, and then on the first day after the nine months, I come up here and I speak with great power and authority, you're going to be listening to what I said. And boy, people listen to what Zacharias said here. Take a look. Take a look. Verse 67. I skipped the part which starts in verse 57. It goes through all the detail of the child being born, circumcised on the eighth day. Significant, verse 60, um, that his name was going to be called John. Notice the mother said that. Man, that's also interesting because Zacharias is the one who got the message and hasn't been speaking. And his father, Zacharias, verse 67 was filled with the Holy Ghost. He's now controlled by the Spirit of God, and he says this, prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, 
for he hath visited and redeemed his people. Would that be accomplished through John the Baptist? No. Who is he speaking of? I skipped the part where we talked about Mary, Joseph, the baby doing a in the womb. Amazing that the first thing that Zacharias gives testimony to, Jesus has come. The focus, people, the focus, the focus, the focus. 69, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. This is directly about, this prophecy here is about Israel, your Redeemer is here. And they put him on a cross three and a half years later. They looked at him and said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. Boy. But look at what Zacharias said. And this is just at the birth of John the Baptist. Jesus is coming a little later. Verse 72, to perform the mercies, the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham. What's that oath? You're going to have seed that can't be numbered. I'm going to raise a people out of, out of this that will be perfect. Peter talks about this. We are a peculiar people. That doesn't mean you're kind of weird, a little quirky. That means you are, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a part of a chosen people. You recognize that? Some of us walking around here, we have self-worth problems and stuff. Recognize who God says you are, amen? Don't wait on somebody in the psych, you know, psychiatric field to tell you, well, something is wrong. It was in the way you were raised. Aren't you glad you got a brand new family? Not saying the family you have here is bad. But boy, that's all temporary. By the time I was 14 years old, well, I mean, a lot of my family had passed away. And I had great comfort as a, as a kid knowing we're all a part of a new family, a family of God. And even today, as an adult, I love to focus on spending time with my family. It's just very important to me. Because I know what we're doing here is a little bit of a taste of what we'll get there. And you know what I'm doing right now? Spending time with family. Those of you who are a part of God's family by faith in Jesus Christ, this family get-together. We're, we're encouraging one another to go out and add to the family, amen? Sometimes we don't see it that way. But that verse 73 is, is explained in 74, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. The only way you can serve him without fear is you have no concern for what the world could do to you physically. You've got spiritual life. And that comes through Jesus. Now, he has not said one word about his son, John. In, holy, excuse me, in holiness and righteousness before him, 75, all the days of our life. And thou, child, now he turns his attention to his son, shalt be called the prophet of the highest. My, my, my. Going from stricken in old age, barren without children, right, you know, in, in certainly looked down upon in the community to now having a child who's going to be a prophet of the highest. Amen. God not only answered their prayer, he went above and beyond. He had a plan for them. For thou shalt go before, mark that please, before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. To give knowledge, now this is very important, of salvation unto his people by the remission of sins. How do people come to the understanding that salvation is available? Your sins are forgiven you by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that's been twisted that we have to ask for forgiveness and people, it's hard for me to see this, how people could ask for forgiveness and then trust in the fact that they asked. You need faith in Jesus Christ. That's what gives you the forgiveness of sins. He's preparing that way so it comes to that conclusion. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. 
this miraculous conception, which required the two of them to come together, but they had been doing that. There was no child. Now there's a child. To give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Bravo, Zacharias. Nailed it. Why do you think he nailed it? God spoke through him. This is a testimony to this man who has been stricken with silence. He started off in unbelief, but God had use for him. There may be people who you talk to who are in unbelief. They have an opportunity to be used by God. They just have to believe. they got to believe on Jesus. So, now we're going to look at the second part of the message. It's a little shorter, a little more verses that we need to go through. But I want you to go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 in verse 6. Now, John the Apostle, John the Baptist, one of these things is not like the other. Okay? I didn't know that when I started going to Bible college. And I failed one of my Gospel of John quizzes. That's okay. Here I am today, right? God can use someone broken. <laughs> this is different, okay? Most of the time when John the Apostle refers to himself, he either says the elder or he says the one whom Jesus loved, or he calls himself in a veiled sense the other um, apostle or disciple. But what we're focusing on here is in this first chapter, right before it talks about Jesus um, calling those to be his disciples, there's a statement that said, after verses 1 through 5, which is a significant passage, and it, it, it would require its own study, the writer of the Gospel of John says this, there was a man, please mark this, sent from God. Now, understanding what was just said in Luke, you, you know those few words, they're jam-packed with history. And I think that's the intent. Someone could read the Gospels through and go, yeah, John the Baptist, that man was planned. He was prepared. He was a blessing. He, he spoke the truth. He was rejected. He prepared the way. And his name was John. The same came, mark this as well, for a witness. Now, this does not contradict what Luke says. This adds to it. A witness. This is a very important statement. Circle that. A witness. It's not just a phrase that's used. This is in a legal sense. He is testifying the record of God to be true. What is that record? That this man, Jesus, is the Son of God. Period. And that would have to mean he's eternal, and that would, that, that would have to mean that he is God and the Messiah. The same came for a witness. John is describing John the Baptist here. To bear witness of the capital L, light. Not a typo. This is speaking of who? Jesus. This is exactly what John was supposed to do. John the Apostle is speaking on it in the terms that God is revealing through him that all men through him might believe. Through the testimony of John the Baptist, all men would see this is the record that God has given to us eternal life and this life is in his Son. John the Apostle writes about that in 1 John chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. He was not that light. This is an important distinction. No, John the Baptist was not Jesus capital L, light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Now, look in chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites. I'm sorry, uh, verse 15. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake, he that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, stop for a second. You've heard some pretty controversial stuff recently from sons who were the sons of great men of God say things like the virgin birth is not important. Okay. If it's not important, then this statement, there'd be a problem. And here's why. If John the Baptist was born... 
before Jesus Christ in the the world here, how could Jesus be before him? This is why is that statement made? The reference that John the Baptist is saying here this is the eternal Son of God. This is not a really, really qualified Jew who did well in seminary. This is not someone who attained godhood as a man. When you study other major world religions, they say those things about Jesus. But John the Baptist says very clearly, this is the one who was before me from eternity, from heaven. Got to understand that as it goes forward. 16, and of his fullness have we all received and grace for grace. For by the law, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now take a look at verse 19. This is the record of John. So John the Apostle is now going to say, this is what John the Baptist said when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? Now we don't go up to some, police officers don't pull you over and say, who art thou? (laughs) Okay? Who are you? Right? You may have a ring camera and you're not saying it, but in the very act of your peering and looking, you're saying, who are you? So they want to know. John the Baptist, who are you? And he confessed and denied not. Why is it significant that he said and denied not? Because those who are the children of God are in agreement that Jesus is the Son of God. If you have a teacher who does not teach a clear gospel message and denies that Jesus is the Christ, he is of the spirit of Antichrist. And John goes on to write about that. John the Apostle, he writes in detail about first about that in first john and denied not verse 20 but confessed i am not the christ now remember i've said this i've said this over and over about the christ the christ the christ jesus christ jesus christ okay christ is not his last name this is a title that they're looking for folks when the antichrist comes rules and reigns here for that seven and a, or for that seven years let me tell you people are going to believe he is holding that title of christ the world will acknowledge it, especially the Jewish people until they're persecuted after this man who they thought was the Messiah desecrates the temple. John says, I do not hold that position. I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Art thou Elias? Are you Elijah come back from the dead? And he saith, I am not. Art thou a prophet? And he answered, this is interesting, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? They've asked him three different options. One being from the very specific to one being a possibility. Elijah, he's not the Christ, he's not Elijah, he's not a prophet. What are you doing? Uh, Then they said unto him, Who art thou that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou for of thyself? Now they're getting a little more formal in their language. They're probably starting to collect evidence to bring against him if they were to put him on trial for like a religious crime, like blasphemy. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. This is the first time we see the group of the Pharisees identified. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. So these are Pharisees that are asking these questions. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither a prophet? Now this is significant. Baptism was not uncommon. It was not uncommon in the Jewish time. What was uncommon was somebody else baptizing you. Every Jewish person who would travel to the temple would have to go into this ritualistic bath And they'd have to wash themselves, not with like soap, but the idea of cleansing the dirt from their travels and the dirt of the world and getting themselves in a proper standing before God as they went into the temple. This was common, but everybody did that of of their own selves. But John is out here baptizing people in somebody's name and power and authority. And if you know something about the Pharisees, that's a challenge. That's a challenge to their power and authority. So they're saying, why are you baptizing then? 
John answered them saying, I baptize with water. Did he baptize with water? Yeah. But there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. That's the end of that discussion. The very next day, this happens. Jesus, uh, the next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, now, hold your spot here and just you look right over to verse 7. The same came for a witness, John the Baptist, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. This is the fulfillment of that statement by the Apostle John. John the Baptist says, Behold, 29, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin, all of it, of the... This is very interesting. Why is this interesting? This is for Jew and Gentile. Anybody, their sin is removed through Jesus Christ. 30, this is he of whom I said, after me, this is the third time he says this line, cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. This is signifying that this is the eternal Son of God. This is God. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore I am come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, very important statement there, bear record. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. This is at the baptism of Jesus. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending, and remain on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. Boom! Bingo! Ding, ding, ding! That's the point of water baptism. Water baptism is a picture of what was accomplished by faith in Jesus Christ. Buried in the likeness of his death, the sinner plunged under the flood of Jesus' blood, so to speak. When they come up, they're sealed with the Holy Spirit, raised again to walk in newness of life. The sinner didn't change. His sin nature is still there. But now he walks in newness of life. He's sealed with the Holy Spirit. He's born again. He's eternally secure. John bears record that that is accomplished through one man, Jesus Christ. Then he says, And I saw and bear record that this, Jesus, is the Son of God. Now, 1 John chapter 5. Go over there with me. Keep those things fresh in your mind. This is where we'll close today. Keep those things fresh in your mind. Talking about the water, talking about bearing witness, the record, all these different things. John the Apostle in AD 90 is around the time he wrote this. What's the significance about that time? Jerusalem was long captured. Paul, dead. Peter, dead. Martyred. Jesus, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven. John's the only one that remains. You may say, what a lonely life. No, no. <laughs> he knew that which was from the beginning, Jesus. And he makes a statement here as he closes on probably one of the most important New Testament practical Christian living books in 1 John. He says this, starting in verse 6. This is he, Jesus, that came by water and blood. Even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness because the Spirit is truth. What did John the Baptist say about Jesus at his baptism? The Spirit came down. God told me the one that comes down upon him and remains, that is the one that you speak of. That is Jesus who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. What's the significance of that title? The Lamb which would be sacrificed. That's his purpose. Verse 7, for there are three that ooh, bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Verse 8, and there are three that bear witness in the earth, the Spirit and the water 
and the blood, and these three agree in one. The Spirit descending on the water at his baptism because he was physically a man. Why are all these things important? The law of witnesses in Deuteronomy chapter 19 expressly states if someone is to be accused of a crime, it cannot be one person bringing a charge against somebody else. It has to be two or more witnesses. Three is preferable. God in the Trinity, in the way that it is set up, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit bear record that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the record. And everything else is important, but it's not as, as important as that. Verse 9. If we receive the witness of men, what's the witness of man? Their testimony to the truth. The witness of God is greater. That's why John continually lessened himself as Jesus came on the scene. He's here. Hear him. I was supposed to prepare the way for him, and he is here. He must... <coughs> For him to increase, I must decrease. The witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. What was said at Jesus' baptism? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What was said on the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter, the line that I say a lot now, it is good for us to be here. Let's build a tabernacle for you, Elijah, and one for you, Moses, and yes, one for you, Jesus. A cloud descended upon them, and when the cloud was lifted, it was just Jesus, and a voice God, the Father from heaven, said, listen to him. That's the testimony that God has said. Verse 10, he that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. What is that witness? The one that bears witness, the Holy Spirit. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son, Verse 11, and this is the record. I love it. I love how simple the Bible is. It's not making you do a big word search or a puzzle. It tells you right here, God hath given to us, those who believe, eternal life. And this life, which is eternal, is in his Son. And the name of his Son is Jesus Christ. Amen and amen and amen. That's easy. That's cutting that pie to where a guy like me can understand it. That's good. That's the point of John the Baptist's ministry. He's not going around saying, turn from your sin, turn from your sin, trust in yourself, trust in yourself. He's saying, the way you think things are going to go, they're not going to go. Jesus, the one that I say, is the one who you put your trust in. Your baptism is a picture that you will believe on that coming Messiah. And so we baptize with water today. Not because it saves anybody from their sin. I heard this from Pastor Jim Scudder. He's seen water all over all the earth, and there's not one source of water that is clean enough on this planet to wash away your sin. Save the blood of Jesus Christ, the record of God, the eternal Son of God. He died for your sin. Yes, we go shopping. Yes, we wrap gifts. Yes, we sing songs at nauseum. But that is not the reason for this season. Jesus Christ is the reason for it all. Be a John the Baptist. Herald the truth of Jesus Christ. Less of me, more of him. Amen? Would you close your Bibles, please? If you were taking notes there, the point I didn't get to, John 3... 22 through 30. Those mark the waning hours of John the Baptist's ministry. It was still effective, but it was replaced as prophesied by the real Messiah, Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you would like to know how you can have assurance of salvation, how you can know that you're going to heaven when you die, may I introduce you to how you can know that heaven is for, your, uh, for you. If this hand represents you and me, I'll let this block of sin represent sin. I put it on top of my hand because the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If we are honest people today, we are all sinners. Amen? God loves us, but he hates our sin. It separates us from him because you have to be absolutely perfect to get to heaven. There's no sin there. Here we are with sin. The wages for sin is eternal separation from God forever in a literal fire-burning hell. And this is very important to understand. That is on the future for people who die without this 
receiving a payment. Churches today, they're going to be letting out in five minutes after preaching a message that points people to saviors of their own. They say, turn from your sin. They say, give money to our church. They say, be a good person. They say all these things that are works, 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 but we're not saved by good works. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. Not by works, lest any man should boast. If you or I could save myself, we'd be able to stand next to Jesus Christ, the record of God, and say, I did it too. John would never say that. John the Baptist knew who he was trusting in. Amen. (laughs) He was trusting in Jesus Christ. And so the offer is there for you too. You've got sin. This needs to be paid for. Hell is on the horizon if you die without this being taken care of. This hand represents Jesus Christ, the record of God. He came into this world, lived a perfect life, and went to that cross of Calvary, not to set an example for you to follow, but to do for you what you could not do for yourself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, people struggle with that, they think those who are better than most. No, no, whosoever believeth, that's all you have to do, believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The moment that you, as a sinner, change your mind from what you are trusting in to get you in a right standing with God and put your trust in Jesus Christ, that sin payment that was made by Jesus many, many, many years ago is applied to your account and you're eternally secured. Isn't that good? I pray that's been an encouragement to you. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes? Nobody looking around. I'd like to give an invitation if you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I, was tr- I walked in today trusting in myself to get to heaven. I, I thought that I was not that bad, but I understand now that I would have to be perfect to get to heaven, and I know that I'm not. And if that's you today, I, I encourage you to put your trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He shed His blood died on that cross, was buried and rose again to pay for all of your sin. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, I believe on Jesus Christ. For the first time in my life, I understand that I'm going to heaven because Jesus has paid for all my sin and I've trusted in Him. Would you pray for me? I certainly would. Would you just raise your hand and let me know? Pastor, pray for me. I just trusted Christ as my Savior. Anyone before we close? Raising your hand doesn't save you. It just lets me know so I can pray for you. No one's looking around for privacy. Heads are bowed and eyes are still closed. I love messages like this where we just go through the Word. I'm praying for you to take this opportunity this time of year and every day, regardless of the season, to share the Gospel. Grab some tracks on the way out. Talk to somebody and say, would you pray for me? I'm timid. I'm, I'm nervous about sharing the gospel. Would you pray for me? Help me out? I'm sure that you'd find people who would. I would pray for you, and I'm praying for you now. Father, thank you for your word, how it's all synchronized and flows together beautifully. Bring us back here safely as we worship again tonight for the Awana program and for all the programs as they're going through this holiday season. Thank you for those who serve. And for those that are here today, willing, ready, and able to be used by you. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we pray these things.